Deuteronomy chapter 32 is where we're going to be tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And, uh, you know, as we talked, uh, when I was able to, um, to be here with you guys about a month ago, I think was the last time I got to talk with you, uh, we talked about how um, it feels like sometimes Pastor Paul's really, really strategic. And when he says, hey, I want you to preach this week, you know, and, and like <laughs> the last time I, I, had to, I had to, you know, work through that thing about the women who had been humiliated and what to do and like, well, Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate you giving me that that text because we don't skip over stuff, right? I mean, if it's there, we've we've got to we've got to deal with it. We've got to talk about it. This is like the complete opposite of that. Like this is this entire text of this week is a song, you know. Like it's not all great, but it is it is a song. And so uh, we're going to spend some time talking about worship, but then we're also going to talk about reconciliation, which I think um, ties this stuff together. Um, I, when, when Susan and I and the boys started coming to this church five-ish years ago, maybe? I don't know. It seems like it may have been that. I don't know. But you know what really, like, when we, when we came, the thing that came up over and over and over for us is how this particular family, this group of people, worshipped. Like, it just... Over and over, you think about just voices filling up this space and, and finding a group of people that were willing to just like authentically pour themselves into worship during that time. It wasn't about any kind of pretense. It wasn't about uh, any kind of show or whatever. It was just, it just felt so real and, um, and it made us want to be here. It made us want to come back. And um, so we kind of we kind of talk about um, worship in the sense of really kind of two two different ways that worship happens. I remember taking a, a class when I was in in Bible college um, many years ago. I had to lead. I had to take a class. Or I had to learn how to lead. Um, music, like not lead worship, but like stand, you know, the people that do this, I had to take a class to learn how to do that, like to keep time. And I never played an instrument. I don't know anything about any of that stuff, but I had to take a class on that. And, but I remember one thing in particular about that, other than how traumatizing it was to stand up in front of people and (laughs) sing and have to do that thing, even though I didn't really know what it was. But I remember the guy that, that taught the class talking about these two kind of ways that worship goes. There's horizontal worship, which is a lot of what we did, where songs are, are written and put together where you are singing directly to your king. And then there's, there's vertical worship where you're still singing to him, but you're singing about the things that he's doing. Does that make sense? And so what Susan told me that she said, that's kind of like the difference between worship and praise. So worship is what we give to him. Praise is what we do about him. Does that make sense? So you might think about this periodically if you're listening to music or maybe Matt's. And again, thank you for what you do. I, I, I don't think that we say that enough. I couldn't do this. I think we've all, we're all comfortable with that. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. Not, and not just because I don't have the ability to do it, but also this is a very weighty position to be in, to to stand in front of a group of people and, and help direct them to the throne through worship, through song. That, that's a heavy thing. And so even as we're singing, you might think about like the words that, that we're singing right now, are we, are we singing them to him? Or are we singing them, about, singing them about him? Does that make sense? So those are two different ways that that happens. The song that we're going to look at tonight in Deuteronomy 32 is a song that Moses wrote for the people of Israel about the things that God has done. So, as you, if you've read through the portion this week, and uh, you've had, if you've had an opportunity to do that, that's that's how it's written. It it's not written from the standpoint necessarily of vertical worship. It's written about the things that He's done. 
but nevertheless, it's worship. And we know that there are different ways to worship. You, you can worship through song, but you can, we, we also just, we worship through our giving just a couple of minutes ago. That, that is a way of honoring and, and holding him up and saying, look, we recognize the fact that all the things that we have were given to us by him for a specific purpose. The job that you have, however much money is in your account, none of that's yours. It was given to you by him so that we could push back darkness in the world. And like specifically tonight, we're talking about, we've got a dear brother that's going to go and do that very thing. And so you have like this direct opportunity to put some money in or write a check and say, Falak, will you take that? Because I can't go. Will you take this on my behalf and go push back darkness in the world? That, that's why you have the job you have. That's why you have however much money is in your account. That's why you have it. So that's a, that's a form of worship. That's a, that's a mode of worship. I think that we worship him by the way that we conduct our lives every day, the way that your manner of living, your conversation, that, those are ways in which we worship him. So we're going to look specifically tonight about worship through singing, and we're going to look a little bit about into the song. We're not going to go, I'm not going to take you through verse by verse in that, but in the notes that, uh, that I provided for you, I put in these little summary things. You'll see where it says first Aaliyah, second Aaliyah. Um, I shared something similar with you last week. Aaliyah just means to go up. And so this is kind of the lifting up of the Torah. It's a little bit of a summary for each section of that. So the way that this particular song breaks apart is he talks about the things that our God has done for his people. And then he talks about how the people responded to those things that he did. And then ultimately come back to just how faithful he really is in in loving and reconciling and drawing us back, even though we didn't really deserve it, even though we went. So so that's kind of how we're going to approach this. Um, last week's portion, uh, Moses kind of wrapped up this, this lengthy address uh, to the people in Israel and commissioned Joshua as his successor. And so we talked a few weeks back about um, Moses did not choose Joshua to be the one to take the people in, correct? God chose Joshua to be the one to take them in, to take the people into the land. Um, Yahovah, our God, then foretold that Israel would begin to chase after foreign gods. They would give themselves over to these foreign gods. And when they do that, what they do is they break covenant with God. He made a covenant with them that I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. But then they broke the covenant by then chasing after foreign gods, gods that are gods with the little G, the ones that that don't hold a candle to the power mercy, grace, and understanding, and all of those things of the one true living God, they decided to chase after and break covenant. Uh, In light of this, Moses introduces uh, to the Israelites a great prophetic song called Ha'azinu. How'd I do? You like that? Ha'azinu. All right, so just, and I put just a few, just a few facts about uh, singing in the scripture. There's, there's at least 185 songs uh, in the scripture, and that, that includes those 150 psalms that, that we know of. Um, and then um, this is not the first time Moses sang, in fact. If you'll remember back when we were studying in Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, right when they finished crossing the Red Sea on dry land, if you remember that, he he got up and led worship. He, he gathered the people together and he sang. So it's not the first time that we've seen this. Uh, and there's actually another song in Revelation 15 or another um, that, that is called the Song of Moses that reflects back to, to this. The longest song in the scripture is Psalm 119. It's 1,732 words. And it's all about the word of God. And, and probably one of the most powerful things that I've witnessed with my own eyes, um, I, was, I, I got to hear... Uh, a preacher, his name is, um, oh gosh, I'm blank. David Platt is his name. Um, I got to hear him preach several years back, and right in the middle of his sermon, he quoted Psalm 119. If you've ever looked into Psalm 119, it is lengthy. 
and he just starts going. And, and I was reading in the Bible as he was going, and then I looked up at some point, and he wasn't looking at his Bible. He was just, he was just going. And we're, it was like at a conference. It was a big place. I thought, we must have like a monitor somewhere or something, but he didn't. But that particular guy has the entire New Testament memorized. Like that's a, that's a commitment to the Word of God that many of us haven't decided to do yet. But it was probably the most incredible thing. Like he just goes and I'm, I'm reading, I'm going, oh my gosh, he hadn't missed a word yet. And I mean, like I am into it. And watching him go through that and, and be that devoted to the scriptures, pretty incredible. The shortest song, Second uh, Chronicles 5.13, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We've sang that, right? We've sang song very, very similar to that directly out of the scriptures. The book of Psalms is not the only songbook in the Bible. There is the Song of Solomon, which is um, just a long love song between a bride and a groom, and an uh, in- incredible picture of love and, and the back and forth there. And then the book of Lamentations, I don't know if you realize this, is a set of five dirges, which is a song of mourning, uh, songs of mourning. So Solomon wrote, according to 1 Kings 4.32, Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. Jesus led the disciples in a song of praise in the upper room in Matthew 26.30, and then Paul and Silas were singing hymns in prison before God broke them out in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. So you see this throughout the scriptures where people respond to God and his love and his faithfulness and the experiences that they have with him, they respond to that oftentimes by, by singing, by giving giving praise and worship. And so that's what Moses is doing here in, in leading his people. So we're going to kind of work through this. So there's, there's kind of some chunks of it that I, I do want us to get into uh, deeply. We start in verse 1 in chapter 32. Um, it starts out with just kind of the, the foundation of this, that to give ear. And that's what that ha'azinu means, to give ear. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak let the earth hear the words of my mouth. And that's how he kicks off this. He's, he's calling people together. And in this, this portion, um, he, he's specifically talking about just the Torah, the scriptures, how Moses declares is life in this world, much like rain and dew are to veg, vegetation. So um, I do want us to spin. I want you to jump down into verse 7. We're going to look at, at this section, this second section Uh, In Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 through 12, it says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Um, So he he kicks off this song by reminding the people about how good God is. And then he he wants them to remember. So in this particular song that he's provided for the people, this is not just a, like a performance. I'm not just going to stand up and sing a song for you. He wrote this for the purpose of sharing it with the people and them continuing to carry it on for generation after generation after generation. It was supposed to be an ongoing reminder. So then when we get down in verse 7, he says, Remember the days, um, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father... And he will show you your elders, and they will tell you, as, this t- as time passes by, the further you get from a, from a point in time, an event that happened, the further you get from that, the more you have to rely on what we would consider to be kind of oral tradition type thing. A, a story is like, if something happened to you this week, if there was something that was super significant that happened to you this week, then the people who experience that with you are going to be very, very connected to that event, that thing that happened. You, you talked to them, you picked up the phone and called somebody if that's what you use your phone for, or you went to their house and had dinner, and I've got to share with you this thing that happened. But next year, those people that you shared that, that experience with, they are going to remember, but not as well as you do because it happened to you, right? But then in five years, that person that you shared that experience with might have moved off. And to you, it's still significant because it happened to you, 
but the circle of people who are around you are less connected to it. So now roll it out a generation from that. And now you're, you're 25 or 30 years down the road. Who's still connected to that other than you? So we rely on these things. What Moses is doing here is he's trying to keep that in, in front of him like, hey, if you don't know because you weren't there, go ask your dad. Ask the elders. They'll tell you. They'll tell you about the things that he's done for his people. They'll talk about his faithfulness in carrying them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. And then we came to this point where we're on the cusp of going into that promised land that that he had promised to us, that we had, we had anticipated, that we wandered around for 40 years waiting for that opportunity to go in because we know how sweet it's going to be. But then as time goes by, like I'm now kind of disconnected from that. That's the purpose. So go ask your dad. Ask the elders. They're going to tell you. They're going to talk about his faithfulness. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. I love that. If you mark in your Bible, I would mark that. But the Lord's portion is his people. There is nothing that God needs from you. You you realize that? He doesn't need anything from you. He wants you to walk in the life that he has invited you to be in. But he doesn't need you. There's nothing about you or me that he can't get accomplished on his own will. But he's invited you in. And and that's that's what I pulled from that. The Lord's portion is his people. I just love that this week in my studies. Jacob, his allotted heritage... He found him in a, de- in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And I just love this picture. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He talks about how he brought Jacob, how he brought Israel to this point. And, and, and he gives the picture. It's like an eagle who uses its wings to cover the nest of its, of its young. It's such a beautiful picture of his love and his faithfulness to us. <clears throat> In verse 13, he made him ride on the high places of the land And he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinted rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the the blood of the grape. But, all right, the tone changes with that in verse 15. So he's talking about he's faithful. He did all of these things. Ask your dad. Ask him. Ask him about his experiences and what happened. He took Jacob. He took Israel and he, and he lovingly brought him to this place. The nation of Israel. He brought them to this place. Verse 15. But Jeshurun, which is just another name for Jerusalem. It's, it's kind of like... Um, Jacob's name is Jacob, but I call him Jake sometimes. It's that, that kind of thing. It's just, just another name for it. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Everything changed. And, and in this song that, Mo, that Moses is teaching to the people about his faithfulness and all of the things that he did, but then you grew fat. Like he gave you what you needed. You were satisfied, but you did, like it just never was enough. And you just always wanted, like, what else is there? What else is there? What else is there? 
that Susan's been reading in um, first and first and second Kings, and um, we've been talking about Solomon and to be the wisest man that ever lived, he was an idiot. I mean, just a fool. And, and the number of times that the number of times that he like would have an understanding of what God really wanted from his life and like what he decided to do with that was go build an altar for a false God over and over and over again. Or now I'm gonna take this new woman in and she's got a different God, so I'm gonna build her an altar also up on the roof. Like just over and over again. That's what Moses is talking about here. Like God fed you. He, he took care of you, protected you like, a, like an eagle spreading out its wings over you. And it just never satisfied you. It was never enough for you. So you just made yourself fat off the land. And you just kept eating of it and eating of it and eating of it. Um, Verse 16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abomination, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To God they had to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your father had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And as I was, as I was reading um, through that section this week, it reminded me of this in, in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 30. Um, I remember preaching out of this text a long time ago, and as I read through how he talked about in verse 15, did all these things for you, but then all of a sudden you just decided like it wasn't enough and you just went after things more and more and more and more, thinking that that was what was going to satisfy you, just like Solomon. That was the error of Solomon, always chasing after the wind, trying to figure out what would satisfy. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, Again, Solomon, two things I ask of you, deny them not before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is, need, that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and still and profane the name of God. He had that moment of clarity. Like, if you'll just, like, provide me what I need so that I don't ever feel like I need anything else. So that I'm, ne- that I'm never, like, overstuffed, but also not in want so that I would steal and profane your name. There's this, there's this balance there that Solomon was asking for. If you'll just, like, I just don't want to... I don't want to ever be so in need that I feel like I need to steal something because then I, I profane your name. But I don't want to become so, so wealthy and, and fat that I just, I deny that you even exist because I feel like I can take care of it myself. And that's what we do. We do that over and over. We built all kinds of structures into our life so that we never actually need him to do anything. Our churches are structured this way. We've talked about this. There's so many things in place that if the Holy Spirit did not show up when we opened the doors and we came in to do this, would we even know? We've got it figured out, right? I mean, we've got our meeting time. We've got our sound together. We've got, we've got resources available to us. I mean, we're ready to go. But have you ever thought about what what the Spirit of God, when, when you come and you, you meet in this place, that the Spirit wants to do something with your life. There's a, there's a reason, there's a purpose that you were here. And then a lot of churches would not know, like the Spirit left them a long time ago. That's not, that has nothing to do with me. I don't need to be in that place and, and left. 
And the church continues to operate because they never knew he left. We structure our lives the same way. What is it that we need from him? We take care of it, right? There is something about being hungry. There's something about feeling desperate and knowing that you're only, the only thing that you can really do in response to it is to press into him and allow him to satisfy and we did that. I just, the only reason I tell you this is because I want to just kind of draw this together. But on, um, on Yom Kippur, which was Wednesday, correct? Lost track of some days. The Day of Atonement. Um, it's the first time that we've actually decided, I'm, I'm, taking, a, I'm taking a sick day. I'm not going to go to work. So... And we, last year we did, as a family, we did a media fast for those, those 24 hours. We, we fasted media, entertainment type stuff. So this year, I actually, I actually treated it as a Sabbath, which is what the scriptures call for. So we treated it as a Sabbath, a day of rest. We fasted media and I actually did the 25-hour fast. It's, it's in a, the 25 hours is, is more tradition type thing, but there, there is a call for a fast on the, on the biblical side of Yom Kippur also. So we did that fast, and the only reason I tell you that is because about the 22nd or 23rd hour of that, I was grumpy. <laughs> I was. Like, I think my blood sugar was going down, and I started like, this wasn't feeling good. Needless to say, I don't condition myself for a lot of 24-hour fast. <laughs> Not the way I roll most of the time. So, I, you know, we started in the evening. We ate like 6 o'clock on Tuesday night, I think, somewhere around in there. And then nothing, you know, so then it'll be like it's close to bedtime. So you get some time, you don't have to think about it too much. <laughs> you just sleep, it, sleep through it. Now listen, that's an option. That's an option. And, and so then I got up and, and I read. I, I sat down. Listen, Sabbath is good. Regardless of how you individually feel about, about Torah, when we talk about Torah, we talk about the first five books of the Old Testament. It's, it's been, um, I would say, not incorrect, it's been poorly translated for years as law, Torah means teaching and instructions. We get scared of it because we don't want to be legalistic. But I'm telling you, it paints a picture of God's economy. That if we were to get into it, how might life change? We're not going to be able to do it perfect. They weren't. It was never put there to save anybody. But there's something about getting into the economy that he designed. This is the rhythm. This is the way I designed the world to work. There's something about being in that that makes you go, oh, that's what that feels like. That's what rest feels like. So we Sabbathed on Wednesday, and I got up, and I read a book. I sat down on the couch, and I did not move until I finished a book. I've never done that in my life. <laughs> Ever. I've read like three books too, but never that way. <laughs> and then I finished that book and I thought, um, it's like noon. And I'm feeling good. Let's study. So I have like that Bible software that I like to use to be able to study. So I got that out. I got my Bible. I knew my text. And I, so I studied. I studied for probably three hours that I sat at the table and just studied. It was awesome. It was great. And then I started coloring, I think, at some point. Like, things start getting weird after that. I think I was coloring. <laughs> Eli and I did a, one of those uh, word search things. And then it really gets blurry after that. I don't remember. I think I'd like slipped into survival mode, you know, where like you start, your body probably starts eating stored up stuff. 
because it thinks it's going to die. <clears throat> I think that's what started happening. I was drinking a lot of water. Yeah, I just kept drinking water. Maybe if I just keep drinking water, I'll be fine. And so, but I'm telling you, like, hour 23, we started feeling desperate, right? Jacob's sitting over on the table, and he's got his head down, like, either wanting something to eat or for Jesus to come back. Like, I don't think he cared. I don't think he cared at that point. But just something else needed to happen at that point. And, and so I'm drinking water, and, and, and like, I don't really want anybody to talk to me anymore. It's just everybody get in your own corner for a little while. But then we just turn some music on, and, and we're listening to music, and reminding, the music is reminding me of his goodness, you know? And, and so it was that time that like really pressing in. What I noticed, the, the thing that I took away from that is I will always default to the things that I know how to do. This is what the disciples did when Jesus died. Did you realize that? You, you know what they went and did after he died? They went fishing, Seems like a weird thing to do after the one that you know to be the Messiah, the Savior, gone. Um, you guys want to go fishing? Or... But that's what I did. I, I just defaulted to things that I know, that, that I'm comfortable with. We've got to figure out a way to be okay in that discomfort. Because during that time, he wants to do something with us. He, we, need to, we need to kill noise. Like That was one big takeaway. There's, there's so much noise in our lives. To be able to slow down, step back. That's why, again, go back. Sabbath is so important for you. So, so important for you. It's important to our God. It was important to Jesus. He talked about it. It there's, it's like a reset button. When you just get completely maxed out and you don't have anything else to offer. And I get that way. I, our, our lives are, are crazy at times. The schedules that, that we keep in the snow house can be insane. And we, yeah, you like that? That's what we call it. We just go and go and go and go and go. And if we didn't have that time to just hit the reset button and just get it all back together, I don't, I don't think it would work. I really don't think it would work. <clears throat> what Moses was telling the people, and, and this song is prophetic. He, he was saying, this is what happened. This is what you're going to do. And this is what he's going to do. And he's saying, you're going to get to the point where you become fat off the land and you give yourself over to other things. That is going to happen. And guess what? It's going to really tick God off. It's going to really make him mad. And people don't oftentimes like to think about that God the one that gets mad, that gets angry, that has wrath because of our sin, but it's, it's throughout the scriptures. You have to take a lot of stuff out if you want to pretend like he doesn't do that. Remove far from me falsehoods and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Was Solomon's prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. If if, if, I'm, if I find myself in poverty, I might do something to profane your name. If I find myself too rich, I'll think I don't need you. Right? That resonates with me. Um, for the sake of time, I, those, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, Aliyah, that you can kind of see the summaries of those, but I do want to get down into the seventh one. Um, we see kind of the tying together of this stuff for Moses, but then I also want us to finish tonight kind of talking about, um, talking about Jesus, so I need to go. Um, 
beginning in verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. So now he's saying this song that I gave you, it's a warning. Take it to heart um, that, you may, that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. He's saying, this is not just like what I'm telling you that you need to make known to your children. It's not just empty words. It is your very life. This This law, it's your very life. By the word, you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. And then in verse 48, that very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite of Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving... Excuse me, which I'm giving the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people. As Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Remember, Moses is not getting to go into the land. All of this stuff, bringing them out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness, coming all the way to the brink, all the way to the point, and Yahuwah says, go up on that mountain and look at Canaan, but you're not going in. Why? Was Moses not going in because he struck the rock? Yes. Yes. Kind of. (laughs) He did did strike the rock when he was told to speak to it. You remember there was another time that he struck the rock and it was cool. Why? Because that's what God told him to do. The second time he told him to talk to it, and my young theologian right here said he hit it with a stick, didn't he? Now, Here's the thing. It wasn't so much the hitting of the rock with the stick. It was making him common. Moses made Yahovah like all of the other gods when he did that. It it was about the action. It was about this, this anger and this wrath. And instead of just doing what he told him to do, and, and speaking to the rock and making the water come out, instead of doing that, he responded the way the other gods would respond. And when he did that, he made Yahuwah, he made God like the other gods, and that's the reason he didn't get to go into the land. He made him common. And this is the thing that I... This is the thing that I get concerned about with Western church. When I say that, I mean churches in the Western part of the world, in in these United States. There are too many things I think that we do where we make God common. Because it doesn't, like we we marvel at what Pastor Falak is going to do. That he's going to go to a place. Listen, they know him there. You realize that? He doesn't get to like go be under the radar. You and I could kind of go and we just look like, you know, like, oh, I'm just here checking out things. The people in Pakistan know him. They know who he is and they know what he does. Every time he steps foot into the country, it's dangerous. His God is not common in Pakistan. Our God has been made 
common in this land. So the, I guess the challenge then become is what do we do that makes him uncommon? This, this blending and melding of culture and faith, it, it really serves no one. That's not true. It does serve someone. It serves the one who's trying to ruin the image. The one that's been trying to ruin the image since the garden. That was the whole purpose. That, that in, in, the, in the creation story, in the, in the original design, he said, let's make man in our image. That, that the DNA of the Almighty is in you. But if the evil one can can distort the image bearer. This whole gospel thing that we talk about goes nowhere. If he can prove that he's not God, it doesn't mean anything. And what we've done is we've figured out a way to live comfortably in the places where we are and we've made him common. So then the, Again, the challenge, the question is, what, what do you do? Like, if, if you just turn it back and you make it individualized, what do I do that makes him uncommon, that makes him unlike any other lowercase g gods that are out there? What makes him different? What makes me, as his image bearer, different? If, if inside my DNA is stamped his name, what sets, what sets me apart from the one that's standing next to me or working next to me or the one that's going to bring my chips and queso out later? Like what, what makes me different? I need chips and queso later probably. <laughs> um, so... Turn, uh, look at, if you have your Bible, or you can, I've got the notes here. In John chapter 6, so if you had, you know, you had your Torah portion this week, you had your Hof Torah, and then a lot of times they'll give us this, this text in the New Testament, and, and this is it. And I just love the connection here and how it draws together. Um, this is coming at the end. So Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And then the disciples got in the boat and went out in the water and Jesus came out to meet them on the water. He, he, he just kind of walked across the water and got in the boat with them. So you remember all of that. So we're, we're in context now. So uh, beginning of verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So the people who are asking him this question are those probably a large group of those 5,000 people plus that he fed with the fish and the loaves. They, they went to find him. They knew that the disciples got in the boat and went, but they also knew Jesus didn't go with them. So then they, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they go, hey, when did you come over here? Okay. Um, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus had this way of like, like pressing on nerves. Like just, oh, you got that exposed. Wow. You know, have you ever had one of those things? Like I get these knots in my shoulders back here. And Susan's like, mm, and you know, like you push it and it like radiates. That's what Jesus would do to people's hearts. Like you, you have that thing kind of exposed and like they ask you a question. He's like, oh, you know what? You're not here because you want to know. You, you got your belly full and you're wondering if I have more bread for you. That's, a, that's why you came and sought me out. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which a son of man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Amen. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Are you kidding me? Do you know who the people are? I just told you. They're the ones that just ate until they were full off of a sack lunch, a lunchable. All of them ate, and then the disciples went around and picked up 12 bags of leftovers. And, and they come to ask him, like, hey, when did you come over here? Like, they're trying to be casual when they walk. Hey, Jesus, what's up? When did you come over here? He's like, you want a sign, but the only reason you want it is because you want to fill your belly. That's what Moses was singing to the people of Jerusalem about. Don't just keep feeding your belly. You'll get to the point where you don't think you need me anymore. So they come and they say, well, so what sign? What sign are you going to give us? I've completely lost my place here. I'm sorry. Then they said, what sign do you do that, that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Idiots. Our father ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's saying, I'm, I'm the bread that you're looking for. You say that the sign was that Moses gave you bread from heaven, but what I'm telling you is Moses didn't give you squat. My father fed your ancestors, and now he's feeding you because he dropped bread down from, from heaven, and now here I am standing in front of you. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's, that was Solomon's prayer in Proverbs 30. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So in the, in the song that Moses wrote, it goes and he kind of talks about what happened. Then he goes, but this is what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to rebel. God's going to get mad at you. And you're going, you're going into exile, just, just so you know. You're going to be scattered. He's going to kick you out. But then he's going to come back and get you. And, he, and he's going to reckon his name. Not because of you, but because of his name, he's going to do these things. And, and in doing so, he is going to then reconcile all things back to himself. He's going to reckon his name, which we, we spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation where we saw where he, where he was reckoning his name. He was, make, he was setting things right. And that Moses sang about that in Deuteronomy 32. And, and in reflecting on the song this week and having uh, the Day of Atonement in the middle of the week and having that experience, I, I just got wrapped up into this idea of reconciliation. That, that was kind of where this whole thing drove me this week. That because you and I, and because the entire nation of Israel at one point, they they decided to just kind of give themselves over to whatever, you know. They, they settled, and we settle. We, all the time we're settling for things that are lesser, that are, that are not anywhere near as good as he is. But then he sets it all right again. He reconciles things. And then he's given this spirit of reconciliation to us, this ministry of reconciliation. And that's where I wanted to kind of wrap up tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. All of that junk, all the things that we've been studying and reading about in Deuteronomy and then like all the stupid things that that Solomon did and then so on and so forth and then you and I. He fixed that, not counting trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's weighty. That's heavy. To, to understand and to live in a way that you, that you do realize that you are an ambassador of his, that there's a specific ministry that's been given to you as that ambassador, and that ministry is all about reconciliation. He reconciled, and in reconcil- reconciling you, He turns you over to now go and reconcile other people to him. But a common God doesn't do that. And a common God is not even, it's not even appealing. There's not even anything about that that I want. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, therefore, on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I still just, I can't, I can't grasp it. As as hard as I try in my own humanity, that thing about him making him who had and knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Struggle with it. I mean, it's, it's a legitimate struggle. I'm telling you, I'm confessing sin before you that I struggle with really fully understanding that, how I could be the righteousness of God. He, he reconciled the things that we messed up. He fixed it. He covered over the trespasses. He made a way. He created the path. He is the path. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And and Paul, in this text, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm pleading with you. You can sense in Paul's writing, you can sense desperation in this this moment. He's talking about like, you are dead. But in Christ, you're a new creation. And then all of those trespasses, all of those, those areas where you found that line and then you just went ahead and crossed it, all of those things, he's fixed that. So I'm telling you, I'm begging you, I'm I'm imploring you, be reconciled to God so that in Jesus, through him, you might become his righteousness. There's so much from this that I told Susan that the struggle that I have with this every time is, is like, where do you stop? There's so many paths that this go down, and, and at some point you gotta stop, you gotta stop talking because it's 713. It's been a little while since I've eaten. So um, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, there's just so many, there's so many paths that this go to, but when we, when we think about 
our worship of him. I just want to tie it back to that with this song that Moses wrote and that he sang over the people and then he commissioned them and said, I need you to take this song and I need you to teach it to your children. I need it to go from generation to generation. We see it come up again in the book of Revelation. There is one, there is only one who has ever been worthy of our worship. There's only one. There are a lot of different things that get our worship, but there's only one that's really truly worthy of it. And he's, he has put it together. He's holy, right? I mean, we can all come to common ground on that. Because of that, there is a way that we, in which we must approach him. Because he's holy, we're not. So there's, there's something that's in place. And I heard this explained a couple of weeks ago. I shared it with Pastor Paul, and it just, like, it just made so much sense. The Torah, the law of God, the, those things that were put into place, do you realize how much grace is in the fact that he gave that to us? We don't want to think about those 613 do's and don'ts that are in those first five books. Because it's like, well, I can't, I can't do that. Do you realize how much grace is in the fact that he gave that to us? He's holy. We have no business communing with him. But he said, here's how you do it. The law itself, grace. For you and I, it's grace. Otherwise, we would constantly be trying to figure out how to get to him. He, he doesn't require us to get to him. He laid it out and then he came and got us. There's so much grace in that. So what do we do then? Collectively as a people, but also individually, what do we do to make him uncommon? And that's a a challenge. I take away from this text this week, and and the thing that I want to offer to you is what do we do to make him uncommon? There's so many things that are vying for our worship. And there's so much that's been done to make this, this mixture between our culture and our faith and, and just making it look good. And in doing so, we've made him common. It's the reason Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. So what do we do with that? What, what are the things that we would need to do to make him stand out in our lives, to stand out in this world, and for people to look and go, that's different. That's not, that's not the same as what I've, what I've experienced before. And, you know, we had those conversations. We did, you know, student ministry for a long time. You know, we have the conversations about, like, how you dress and the music you listen to and things like that. And I'm like... That's that's hard. Like, yeah, I mean, don't don't be stupid. But even beyond that, in in the way that we live our lives, in our conversations, what do we do that sets him apart from everything else? It's going to require action on your part individually, but it's not about setting you apart. I just want to be clear about that. It's not about setting you apart. It's setting your God apart. But it will require you to do something. But let that happen as a byproduct of how much you love him. Not out of white knuckle getting it done. That's not it. If there's something that you did that you did it for him, and, and maybe you had to deny yourself something, but you did it for him. 
He's not going to love you more or less for doing that. But you might love him more because you did it. And, and I will keep beating that drum every single time you get to hear from me because it, it, might, it might revolutionize your faith. You don't, you don't do it to get his favor. There's nothing you can do to get his favor. There's no possible way he could love you more than he already does. But what are the things that we do as a people to show him how much we love him? And then the carryover for that is you might fall more in love with him, which will change your world that you live in. You will set him apart as being completely uncommon. He's not a common God. He's different.